you open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 26. The title of the message today is The Long Arm of the Gospel. We began Sunday school this morning with a question of what does it mean to believe? The first thing we need to know and understand is us immensely, that he's in pursuit of us extremely, that he desires for us um, completely to experience his love. And he offers to us the possibility, the opportunity to respond by loving him back. That is up to us. That will never be forced. That will never be coerced. Um, we approach God oftentimes like we would in a courtroom or in a law firm where um, what if this happens or what in this situation or what would the answer be here? Um, oftentimes are questions that are answered in heaven and not on earth. The, the, the simple picture is God loves you and he offers you to love him back. Um, I heard a true story about a, a man whose mother um, had been through one of the concentration camps in Germany during World War II, and she survived. Um, she survived many years after that. She never trusted in Christ as her savior. And at, at her funeral and after her funeral, um, she asked a, a Bible-believing pastor so are you saying that my mother is in hell wow <laughs> would you like to have that question and and I thought his response was really accurate and really powerful this is this is how people get into hell he said I don't know if your mother made a decision to follow Christ at the end of her life or not. But here's what I do know. That God loves her so much that he would never force her to be with him. I've heard it explained this way. It's kind of like um, women, women would understand this better than men. Have you ever had a boy or a man pursue you that you weren't interested in? What if he pursued you and pursued you and pursued you and forced you to love him? Um, the reality is that if he loves you, this man that you're not interested in, he will say, okay, I love you enough to want the best for you. It's up to you. That's how God approaches us. He pursues us and he pursues us and he pursues us. But if the reality is, God, I don't want to be with you. He loves us too much to force us to do anything. Let's pray before we begin this message. Heavenly Father, the extent to which you read out, reach out to the world is, is too big for us to fully understand, but I ask that you would help us to better understand this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read a, a, a verse in Acts chapter 26. You've heard me refer to it before in verse 20. This is probably about... 59 AD, and I'll explain that why that's significant in a minute. 
Paul gives us what is a doctrinal picture of the gospel, which he will define throughout the book of Romans, which was written a little bit before this. So he's in a sense summarizing this. Acts 26 is not before the book of Romans, but it is after the book of Romans. So he has completed his doctrines of the gospel and he is summarizing them here to King Agrippa when he says, first to those in Damascus, when Paul first got saved, then to those in Jerusalem, which is where he went after that, he wasn't accepted there, and to all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, in other words, everywhere I went, everywhere I preached. I preached, and there's three things here that happens in a person's life when they come into a relationship with God. Not two out of three, not one out of three, but three of these things happen according to the Apostle Paul. Number one, they turn to God by repentance. So first they repent, meaning they're turning from their sins. Number two, they turn to God. Number three, they demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. So this is uh, the, the reality of a person coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that three things happen. They repent, they turn to God, and they demonstrate their repentance by their good deeds. This is God's picture. So when we ask questions like, is this person saved or is that not per this person not saved or is, is this a sin that can make them lose their salvation or were they never saved or all of those things, God simply gives us a picture of, I turn from my sins, I turn to God and I follow him. The question that is always the question is, am I following Christ? We're going to look at the, the breadth of the gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 1. You're close by there. If I asked questions this morning and I said, who does God love? You would say everyone. And if I asked you, how do you know that that's true? It's likely that everyone in this room would be able to respond to me from the Bible. It says so right here. If I said, who does God want to save? You would say everyone. And it probably it's likely that most of you could find verses in the scripture that say, it says clearly right here, he wants to save everyone. If I asked you, who is he able to save? You would say, everyone. Now the follow-up question gets tougher. I would say, for example, okay, you're a Muslim child surrounded by two types of people in the middle of Iran. The two types of people are Islamic jihadists, angry, opposed, to God, opposed to Christians, opposed to Judaism, opposed to the Bible. Jesus is a prophet, but that's all he is. The other type of people that you're surrounded by is respectful, Allah-worshipping Muslims. So you've already answered the question, does God want to save this child? Yes. Is God able to save this child? Yes. So answer this for me, how? How can he save that person? 
because it seems impossible. Let's look at some of the doctrines taught by the Apostle Paul, beginning in Romans. Um, in Romans 1, verse 1, we see a, broad, a broader description in the opening verses of what we just read in the book of Acts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his early life was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith, repentance, and demonstrating repentance. Demonstrating repentance here is obedience, and repentance is the faith, turning to God for his namesake. And you, are, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the end, that when you come to him in repentance, you belong to him, you are purchased by him. Let's look at a verse, drop down to verse 18, as we see this structure and this reality of the gospel that goes back to the beginning of man. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Every person who is lost is lost for this reason. They have suppressed the truth by their wickedness. And we will use scripture to explain how that happens, but this is everyone. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. In other words, every person, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20 is a critical verse to understand. It says, Paul writes, for since the creation of the world, going back to Adam and Eve, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people were out without excuse. From Adam to today, from today through the rapture, from the rapture through the tribulation, from the tribulation through the millennium, this verse applies. And Paul says in this verse that through creation alone, all people will be held accountable. So question, is God just? Yes, he is. Then this verse is true. If this verse is true, that he can take this Muslim boy, he can take someone in the aborigine tribe of the jungle, he can take someone in the depths of the jungles of Africa or in the middle of the wilderness in Australia, and he can hold them accountable. If those two statements are true, one, through creation alone, he can hold them accountable. And two, 
he can hold everyone accountable through this, then the general picture of the gospel is, and this is what we will see as we go throughout the scriptures today, this could be a classroom study for months, we're gonna summarize it in a message, that what God reveals to you is what you are responsible to respond to. He will not allow a human being to walk this earth, and I wanna say this as a complete as I can, who has the capacity to recognize God and creation and all of his work to reach man above and beyond creation, he will not allow one individual to miss his work through creation alone. Now we're gonna talk as we get deeper into the message how the gospel needs to get to them and we're also going to explain how they're immediately responsible, which means they must be immediately able to be saved. How can that work? Well, the big questions are going to be answered by God, but turn to Romans chapter 2. This is our third picture of the gospel. And this one, for an evangelical Christian, is hard to explain. In Romans chapter two, did a person get saved? Did they pray the right prayer? Did they do the right thing? Um, are they still saved? Did they stay saved? Are they once saved, always saved? All of those things we need, we're broadening out as we begin this morning with starting from a person who is born in the, the southern jungles of South America. The rapture is about to happen and all that they have seen is the stars in the sky and the trees around them. Are they accountable then? Yes. Can they be accountable if he can't save them? No. So for example, that from, from the biggest perspective, I'm gonna go back to the rich man and Jesus says to the disciples, as the rich man walks away and his head is down because I can't give up this to follow him, so I'm gonna stick with this. Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to be saved than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Question from Peter and the boys. Who can be saved then? With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. To understand the breadth of the love of God, we have to understand that he offers salvation to everyone. Why does the gospel need to get to them? It's not less important, but we need to understand from his throne how this begins. In Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, these are, this is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of responding to God. This is how simple it is in its form. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It starts with creation. I can't fathom all of this, 
But if, if, if someone comes to the intellectual maturity to understand God through creation and they see God through creation and in the next moment they are struck by lightning, the only way they can be accountable is if God can save them from there. Now, let's put an age to this young person. Let's say this young person is 15 years old and they suddenly realize the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. They realize Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, though they cannot fathom what he's done from beginning to end. All of that is in this verse. So, at 15, he realizes, God, you're out there. He's immediately faced with a decision. Do I pursue life through him or through me? That's the pursuit talked about here. Let's look at the other choice, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. The gospel in its intricacies as we have available in 2019, we need to understand them. We need to preach them. We need to understand that when someone sees the gospel, they better understand it. They better respond to it. When we go to the simplest picture of the gospel, what God has revealed to you, you need to respond to. What is my response? I will follow you or I will follow me. For those, Romans 2, 7, who are persistent in pursuing good, pursuing God, doing what he has for them, eternal life. For those who say no, I'm in control, wrath and anger. That's a picture of the gospel. We're going to see as we go forward in the message today some examples of how that is played out. Turn to Romans chapter 5, an important verse, verse 18. Like I need to say that a verse in the book of Romans is important, right? This verse is important as to what we're looking at, verse 18, to understand how he can save everyone. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for who? All people. No person will be judged for what Adam did. When Jesus went to the cross, we talked about this recently, he undid everything Adam did. Adam gave everyone original sin. Jesus took it away. He took it away on credit for everyone up to the cross, and he took it away 
permanently for everyone after the cross. So the reason that it starts with creation and not birth, birth has been covered at the cross. What Adam did, God undid. It doesn't mean we weren't born with original sin. It doesn't mean we weren't born with a propensity to sin. But it does mean that we won't die for someone else's sin, which then means I can save everyone. We will see this in some examples as we move forward. Let's look at one of them. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David gives us two important theological understandings that are long before the cross. We go from Romans 5.18, we could have included 1 Timothy 4.10, to understand that Romans 5.18 makes 2 Samuel 12.22 true. 2 Samuel 12, 22. What has happened here is it's been probably about a year since David committed murder and adultery. He has seen a child born to Bathsheba out of this. This child has come into the world. Nathan has come to David who has been in unrepented sin for about a year. And David tells him a story. And David, or Nathan tells David a story. He responds in rage and he he says, David, you're the sinner in the story. David repents and God says, I accept your repentance, but your child is going to die because of your sin. David lays at this child and prays for this child, asking God to give his child life. God does not give him physical life but David helps us know that he gave him eternal life. Verse 22, they have asked him the question, I don't understand, you were, you were upset and, and wouldn't eat or wash, now your child is gone and you're doing both. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? And here's two theological statements here that are born out of Romans 5.18. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David makes two important theological statements here that someone without understanding that dies physically is immediately in heaven. This could be for this few-month-old baby. This could be for a 70-year-old person who is born with extreme limitations. But it is a picture of grace that I won't let, God says, I won't let anyone slip through the cracks. To a person who can't choose me, even through creation, saved every time. To someone who has committed murder and adultery, saved through repentance. And David tells us that he is saved here. He has 
repented of his sins. I believe David was saved long before this. I want to look to some theological understanding. Turn to Psalms 32, who David writes immediately after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to read a couple of verses that are theologically important. Paul uses them in the book of Romans to explain how once we are saved, we are always saved. David has committed adultery and murder, and he has lost his child, and he is praising God for the fact that the verses that we just read in 2 Samuel are true. This was horrible, it's my fault, it's gonna leave scars, the rest of my life will be difficult because I did a terrible thing. But my child is in heaven, and I will be too. My child is in heaven and I will be too. Verse one, in response to that doctrinal truth, he says, David writes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Drop down to verse five, another important verse. This is David's repentance. I don't know if this is David's salvation, um, but we can, we'll look at that in a second. Verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the healing that's talked about in James five. So from man's view, this is David's worst sin, right? Not from God's view. Wait a minute. How can you say that, Jim? How can you say that adultery and murder isn't the worst sin that David ever committed? Um, we won't go there, but you can go to, I think it's in 2 Chronicles. What happens as a result of David's sin here? What's the visible punishment for this sin? A death of a child. David later counts his troops to see how significant he has become. How many people die? 70,000. What's that got to do with what we're talking about, Jim? Before he does that, he says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose guilt the Lord will never count against him. David says, I know I'm going to heaven, and he doesn't even realize here that my worst sins lie ahead. But who's speaking through David? God is. So there's three theological things that David tells us in his sin with Bathsheba. Number one, all children go to heaven. They're not old enough to understand. Number two, all repented people who follow God will go to heaven. And number three, if that's true before his worst sin, then people who are saved are always saved. They don't become unsaved. Turn to Romans chapter 10. What I want us to understand is that when we looked at Sunday school a few weeks ago and we asked, Dave asked the question, are there things that God is incapable of? Answer, <laughs> 
Yes. What is the incapable of? One of the examples of was showing favoritism. If I ask you a question that humanly doesn't seem to make sense, does he love you more or Pharaoh? The same. Does he love you more or Saddam Hussein? The same. Does he love you more or that Muslim boy that I described? The same. When we hear Paul in Romans chapter 8 say nothing can separate us from the love of God, that, that statement is universally true. Nothing can, say, can separate a lost person from the love of God. So when we look at, we're going to look at dispensations of truth. Remember, we start from the beginning that whatever God has revealed to you about himself is what he holds you responsible to respond to. And in Romans chapter 2, he says there's two responses. One, I'm going to seek the pursuit of the good things, the righteous things, and I'm going to stay persistent in it. Paul says you're going to find eternal life. The other person says, I'm going to live for myself. He says, you're going to find wrath and you're going to find anger. In Romans chapter 10, this is the gospel that Paul, this is the culmination of the gospel to the Gentiles. The end of Romans chapter 10 is the end of that gospel. He begins to um, talk about verses we're familiar with, Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As ambassadors for Christ in the church age, this is the message that brings salvation. It is the only message today that brings salvation. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. This was written. And the time frames become important to understand what I'm speaking about today. This was written about 57 A.D. So, the gospel is called today Paul's gospel. When a person hears the message about Jesus Christ, they're offered acceptance to God. Everyone who hears this message and responds through this message, and Paul says in Chapter 1 and verse 5, it's through this faith that we obey. He says in chapter 2, 
verse 6. It's through this faith that we continually set ourselves on a path in pursuit of God being on his throne and me following him. And everyone who does this, Paul says here in verse 10 or 9 and verse 13, will be saved, saved from condemnation. So in 57 AD until 2019, all the way through the rapture, this is the message. Now, if someone hears the message, it has to be this message. No other message can save you. And it's through this message that he opens our ears to believe, and he opens our minds to acknowledge, and he will open our hearts to receive if we pursue it, if we respond, if we say yes. Now, what about that Muslim boy? What about that Aborigine in Australia? What about that Aka tribe in South America? No Bible. No message. Who's Jesus? Can he save them? We already answered that, didn't we? We said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, which things are possible? All things. And we explained what things, what God has revealed to you. Dave talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, is that God will often intervene and he will orchestrate he wants ambassadors there, but because ambassadors in large part are so unwilling to bring the gospel, the love of God exceeds the willingness of the preacher. So the love of God will initiate through creation. He will initiate through supernatural intervention. He will lead them on a path that he will ultimately join with the gospel. But what about that Muslim boy on day one? What about that Aborigine the day before the rapture? Does the love of God have a long enough arm to reach them? Yes, it does. Let's go backward in time. We're going to do this by time frames to understand. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is important in a time frame. Because in Acts chapter 10, we know that he wrote Romans around 57 AD from Corinth. When we read Acts chapter 26, he's in Rome on his way to Rome, which means knowing that he wrote the book of Romans from Corinth before he went to Rome, the book of Romans has already been written in Acts chapter 26. Not only is Romans not written in Acts chapter 10, but none of Paul's letters are written. Paul writes his first letter around 49 AD, and it is the book of Galatians, and there's a huge uproar in Jerusalem when this letter starts to circulate, and it finds its way back to Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem are saying, Paul says circumcision doesn't matter. That's wrong. You have to be circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas make their way back 
from Antioch after he's written the letter to the Galatians and they travel back to Jerusalem and set that straight. This is after Paul is saved, but before any of Paul's missions and before any of Paul's letters, and Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 10, and what has happened here is a man named Cornelius, God, God, I, I choose you. I follow you. I don't know you, but it's not about me. I'm not pursuing Cornelius. I'm pursuing whoever did this, whoever built the temple in Jerusalem, who has ever done these things when he sees true followers. And what has happened in his life is he, he sees a vision. And over in Joppa, Peter sees a vision. God is supernaturally interrupting, stepping in where a person, when a person says yes to God, and they continue to say yes, God does supernatural things so that Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 will be true. So he gives Peter a vision, he gives Cornelius a vision, he puts the two of them together. He comes into Cornelius' house, this is important, he's an influential man, he has Jewish friends, he has um, Gentile friends, there are many people here. Peter is preaching, is he preaching Romans chapter 10? No, because it's not written. Is he preaching no circumcision? No, because it's not written. In verse 43, we pick up what he is preaching. All the prophets testify about him, about the Son of God, the Messiah, that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Faith comes from hearing, Paul says. The gospel that Paul wrote is what Paul's referring to. The gospel is not written here. Paul's gospel is not in place. So Peter puts what is in place. He's the one. Believe in him. So without saying you must confess with your mouth he is Lord, without believing in your heart, um, you won't be saved. He says, he's the one. Believe in him. This is the gospel from 33 A.D., to 56 AD. Same person? Yes. Same person to follow? Yes. Same dispensation? No. John begins his gospel by saying he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to those who believed in him, to those who received him, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's what Peter's preaching. He heard it directly from Jesus. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus comes on the scene. And for this time period, the gospel is simply believe in the Messiah. So John writes the gospel of John. And at the end of the gospel of John, he says, I write these things to you so that you would believe he is the son of God. And that by believing you will have life in his name. So during this time period, that's the revelation. 
It's not a different plan. It's not a different pattern. When Paul says you must repent, turn to God, and follow God, Paul explains the same thing. In this dispensation, we hear the same thing. And Peter gives us affirmation in verse 44 that while he is still saying believing in him means eternal life, they're saved. They haven't prayed a prayer. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't been baptized. They didn't confess with their mouth. They believe what God revealed to them. It is Jesus. He is life. They were saved. Let's go backwards in time, take a bigger jump now. Go to Zechariah chapter 3. We looked at these verses not too long ago. We will see the same three things. Remember, we saw these three things in Isaiah. Isaiah sees Christ. He's confronted with his sin. He is offered salvation. He says, here am I, send me. We see the picture of Peter. Mark more extensively describes the calling of Peter. When Peter was actually called, he was told to go against the green and fishing. He, he's told the wrong way to fish by Jesus. And he goes and does it anyway. He says, because you tell me to do it, I'll do it. They have the largest catch of fish they've ever had. And he suddenly realizes, you're the son of God. And he's suddenly confronted with his sin and he repents. And then Jesus says, follow me, and he does. Well, let's go back before Paul. Let's go back before Peter. Let's go back to Zechariah, as we see the picture here in chapter 3. Verse 6. Then the angel of Yahweh, who is that? That's the Son of God. Gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me, Paul says that in Romans 1.5, and keep my requirements, you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. He sees a vision like Isaiah, a picture of salvation where he says, if you will keep my requirements, are we saved by works? No. Can you have a relationship with God under the law without pursuing the requirements of the law? No. How do you follow Christ today? Well, it says in the Great Commission, teach them to obey everything I command you. Well, those things weren't written for Zechariah. What was written? The law. Does the law save you? No. Moses made clear. The law points you to the one who will save you. In other words, Paul says the law is the schoolmaster or the law is the highway that takes you to Christ. So it is reasonable from Romans chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8 that I'm going to be on the path that takes me to Christ, which is the requirements of the law in the Old Testament. So this 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead is about 2,000 years. It's about 57 AD until 2019 to this point. This believe that he is who he says he is and follow him is what Christ preached. It's what Peter naturally preached. And by that you are saved. That's from 33 AD until about 56 AD between the beginning of Jesus to the gospel of Paul. We step back here and we have a promise of heaven to Joshua. We have a promise of authority in heaven to Joshua. And we have, if you will obey me and keep the requirements, it's yours. That's from 1445 BC to 33 AD. That's from the time Moses wrote the law until Jesus came on the scene. You couldn't, Solomon built the temple around 1000 BC and he included every person on earth praying to this temple. Why was that so important? Who was in the temple? Jesus. So while the Jews didn't get it, Solomon, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, when he builds the temple, he says, and when the Gentiles pray towards this place, Lord of heaven, hear them and respond to their prayers. The Jews, like us, were to be ambassadors to the world. But if the Jews weren't doing their job and they turned to the God of the temple of Israel, they were saved. Let's go back to one more dispensation, the widest one, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. When we see what I believe is the conversion of the father of the Jews. And I, and I need to be cautious there. I'm not dogmatic about that. What has happened? in Abraham's life is that in a world much like the Muslim boy I described, where the truth about God is not religiously practiced, a creation is visible, God will do what he needs to do, he will gain everyone's attention somehow some way. And Paul says that if he gains your attention and by that you turn towards him in pursuit of righteousness, pursuit of immortality, pursuit of eternal life, that's exactly what you're going to find. Abraham is an example of the Bible who as soon as he saw God in creation, as soon as he heard from him supernaturally, he stayed on the path. He never got off. What will happen in Abraham's day is that God will give you new enlightenment, new revelation. Still with me, Abraham? Still with you. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving, God. I'm, I'm confused. I'm scared. But I'm, I'm not leaving. So the things that we say of the roller coaster of life, Hebrews 11 says that Abraham's faith never wavered. He's human. 
but he got on the path to stay on the path. And he was promised eternal life. So Romans 10, 9, not written. Jesus and Peter, nope, nothing they said. The law of Moses, 1,500 years, doesn't have it. What's he got? Creation, creation conscience, and a pursuing God. Abraham wasn't offered something different than the people around him. Abraham said yes to what he was offered. What God revealed to Abraham, Abraham said, yes, I will follow you. It's visible because he's called from a place he's comfortable with. He's wealthy. It's everything he knows. God says, I want you to go to a place that's uncomfortable. Nobody knows you. You're not going to realize it in your lifetime. Where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. And Abraham goes. That's what God wants. Where are we going, Jesus? Trust me, Peter. Follow me. Okay, I will. Where are we going, God? Trust me, Abraham. Follow me. Okay, I will. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham isn't wavering in faith, according to Paul in Hebrews 11, but he's down. He's scared. He's discouraged. He's just rescued Lot. He's met Melchizedek. His emotions are trying to rule over what he knows to be true, which is limited compared to you and I. And God comes to him in that moment. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a what? Vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, this is the first time in the Bible that this Adonai is, Adonai is translated in English here to sovereign, master, lord. King, ruler. So he's literally saying, but Abraham said, Adonai Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, and Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. And I think part of what he's doing here is saying, remember the first time you did this? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. He says, now look up again. Count them. That's your descendants. Think of how ridiculous this is medically, first of all. Abraham's approaching 100. Sarah is approaching 90. She's been menopausal for many years. She's never had any children. And God is saying, she's going to have a child through whom the promise will come. If you can count these stars, that's who will descend through the womb 
of your menopausal wife. What does verse 6 say? Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Book of Romans? No. The book of Acts? The book of John? No. The law? No. God revealed himself to Abram years earlier, a quarter of a century earlier. And Abraham pursued. Don't know where this is going. Don't have any writings. But I know this is the one who did all this. And a quarter of a century later, he says to him, you are going to have a son and it, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. This is my revelation to you, Abraham. I believe you. I believe you. What does believing mean? I'm going to continue following you. Abraham sees this in a vision. Turn to Acts chapter 2. I want to find my way back to the Muslim boy. Acts chapter 2. The first message given within the church. We know they, be, they had prayer meetings for a while before this, but now the Holy Spirit has come to earth. He is speaking through the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. And Peter begins to quote prophecy in the middle of his message. And I want to read this prophetic verse. He is quoting Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 in the time frame, the first prophet in the Bible to proclaim the second coming of Christ is the prophet Joel. He is the first to do that in the Bible. Peter is familiar with Joel here. The Holy Spirit is guiding him and he is preaching him. I'm not going to be dogmatic on exactly what this means, but I want, to, want you to see that this is how God works. Verse 17. In the last days, and don't misunderstand my question. My question is, do you think we're in the last days? Don't misunderstand that to say, hey, Jim, Jim's saying for sure that this is, means right now today. But I am saying that we are in the last days. Okay? And this is Peter's message. By the way, if we're in the last days, technically, they weren't in the last days here. But the kingdom is being offered to them here. And the kingdom is close to us, much closer as it turns out than it was to them. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on who? All people. He's preaching to Jews, but he says right here, all people in quoting Joel 2.28. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will what? See visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I'm going to tell you that very practically, this is necessary. If every believer in the world went into all the world and preached the gospel today, the world would be quickly reached. It is not the case. 
The case is that there are more people in the world who haven't heard the gospel than there is people who have heard the gospel. So who does he love more? The people who have heard the gospel or the people who haven't? This is where we leave Calvinism behind again. Because they believe the reason we've heard is because he, we're the ones he loves. Which Bible are you reading? My Bible says he loves them all. He loves everyone. That he holds them all accountable to creation, meaning he can save them any way that he wants to save them as long as they respond positively to what he shows them. So Peter preaches that in the last days, you will prophesy, I will make this to all people to see visions, to dream dreams. Why is that important? As an example, I found my way back to this Muslim boy that I keep this fictitious in a sense, but real reality. It'd be interesting for you to Google on your phones. Today, 2019, there are many more Muslims being saved than there are people in Christian countries. 25% of these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims. This is emotional to think about. Say that Jesus appeared to them in a vision. They know this prophet, Jesus. They know a little bit about what Christians say about him, but everything that they're taught about him is he's just a prophet, he's just a man, he's not God. Christians are evil, Jews are evil. God, Allah will bless you, Muhammad will bless you if you persecute these people. And somehow, creation, visions, it, it sounds ridiculous until you hear some of these Muslims. One of the, the, the people I've heard on this is on RZIM, um, talk about his personal conversion, how Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision and told him who he was and invited him to follow. You say, that's ridiculous, Jim. It's only ridiculous that that's the only way he can hear. Because we're supposed to go tell him. I can't explain all of this, but that's exactly what happened to Abraham. No Bible, no preaching, no Jesus, the Messiah, no son of God, no creator of the universe, but to the Muslim boy, who did create this? The Quran doesn't talk about it. The Quran never uses the word love. Not once. But something happens that needs to happen for God to hold this Muslim boy accountable one-third of the world is Christendom. In other words, people professing to be Christians. One-fourth of the world is Muslim.
Who does God love more? Christendom? And I'm talking about individuals. Or Islam? He loves them the same. Who did he die for? All of them. I can't figure all this out. I just know that uh, they, by the way, the Muslim boy fictitious that I'm describing, who did he descend from physically? Abraham. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Romans 4 says that I'm a descendant of Abraham because I believe in Jesus Christ. So the Jews, in the same context where he says your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, he says that um, all nations reach through you, Abraham, through your descendants. Jesus has the power to do things we're unwilling to do. He has the love that exceeds all the love that I have. Here's why I shouldn't lay my head down tonight in contentment. You're the Muslim boy. Jihadist? Ramadan? Peaceful, worshiping Muslims? That's all you got. Creation, eternal thoughts. Let me say it a different way. It's your child. You would say, someone's got to tell them about Jesus. How can they respond unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone's sent? How can some, someone's sent unless you go? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet who bring good news. But don't miss the reality that Jesus says, if you won't go, I'm going to prod harder. This descendant of Abraham probably because this Ethiopian um, servant of Candace, I believe, in chapter 8, what happens? He stops. Philip sees what? A vision. And he goes to this Arab man who had been to Jerusalem, picked up a copy of Isaiah in a scroll, and he's reading about this person who would lay down his life for everyone else. And he's thinking to himself, who is this? Who does this? Who would? Philip sees a vision and God sends him right there. Cornelius is a Gentile man who says, God, all I know about you is good. Um, I know this, this isn't about me. He gives him a vision. He gives Peter a vision. Why wouldn't God give a vision today? Well, the reason he would is because I won't go. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. And this is when um, it's over for us to bring the gospel to the world. We are with the one who made provision for everyone. And he sends his angels to the earth. To preach the gospel to these, maybe this Muslim boy, maybe these people who never did hear the gospel, but they've had some revelation. And in verse chapter 14 of Revelation in verse seven, this angel says very simply, very 
minus Romans 10, minus Acts, minus the Gospel of John, back to Abraham, he says, verse 7, in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's how people were saved for the first 2,700 years. He is saying to these people, you know there's a creator. This creator's the forgiver. But if you don't turn to him, judgment is here. This is a pretty simple message. This is a pretty clear opportunity. In closing, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We have an embarrassment of riches. We have Abraham's story. We have Zachariah's story. We have Cornelius' story, the Ethiopian eunuch's story. We have the Apostle Paul's story, who, by the way, the Lord stopped him in a vision. Um, we have all of these examples that prove the extent and how long the arm of the gospel is. This is our gospel. This is 2019. This is in America. This is how many Bibles do you have on your shelf? Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Today, 2019, if you have this Bible in your hand, what Paul says to be true, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, making him the, the throne filler in your life, the veto authority of every decision you make, Paul says, hold to that firmly. Verse 3, for what I received, I have passed on to you, as of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Abraham didn't have that, we do. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. The most important miracle ever is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it gives testimony to creation, it gives testimony to God, and it gives testimony to who God's Son is. Verse 5, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, who was a disbeliever and a hater of Jesus, I dare say, before the resurrection. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. We explain that in Church Builders. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, Paul, you haven't gotten the message. You haven't seen it through creation. I know how much I can use you, so I'm going to stop you by a miraculous vision that will blind you and change your life. That's the grace of God that is in Paul. What else does the grace of God do? Read verse 10. Look at the demonstrating 
your repentance once you believe in this verse, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me is not without effect. What does grace do in Paul? He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Grace? Yes, that's grace. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. I forgot to announce our uh, up here, but this is a good time to do it. What part of you can God have your permission to rule over that he doesn't rule yet? Lovingly, this isn't, there's no magic up here. There's no religious connotation. Write it down on a card, put it in there and light a candle and we will share that with each other. Paul says, his grace wasn't without effect in me. He says, I worked harder than any of them and I did it by grace. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. God's heart is bigger than mine. He loves people more than I do. The significance to this Muslim boy I keep using as an example, the significance to someone on 2nd Street in Mendota, Illinois, is that the promise Jesus made to Peter, he's making to you. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. You don't have to pray every day, make me a better fisherman. You have to follow Jesus every day and he will do it. And the reality is people will get saved in Mendota, Illinois, and other parts of the world if we do. Let's pray. Lord, when I look at the vastness of your love and the way and the extent in which you introduce yourself to every human being, knowing that many, if not most of them, will reject you but with relentless love. I just praise you for it. I can't, I can't claim to understand the extent of your love, but I want more of it. I pray that you would change the things, um, discard the things in me that are still selfish and love, love limiting. And I pray that you would make the changes that make me like your son. So that like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that I will no longer see Christ or my neighbor the same way, but I will see them like you see them. Teach us to love who you love, how you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.